We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Brooklyn Lestrician and I'm here with Natalie Smatis. Hey, how's it going? In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Emmeline Reisdorfer. Dr. Reisdorfer is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Nursing at McEwen University. She's an experienced registered nurse working in community and primary care, long-term care, and mental health services. Dr. Emmeline holds a PhD in psychiatric nursing. Her primary goal related to scholarship is to develop research projects that ultimately improve the quality of healthcare and nursing services provided to people with mental health and addiction disorders and develop solid pedagogical approaches to support post-secondary nursing education. This goal is accomplished by developing and implementing empirical-driven studies that contribute to the understanding of professional nursing practices in these areas while supporting effective public health policy formulation. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk about your research. Um, kind of just want to get started with what was the driving force behind your research and your career? Okay, so uh, when I was in my undergraduate nursing studies, I never wanted to do research. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. No. <laughs> I wanted to run away from it. <laughs> uh, then I went to practice. I started working in primary care back in Brazil. And I worked for like five years and life changed. And I was op- always open to new opportunities, new uh, endeavors. Also, I didn't want to work with mental health. I didn't want to mm-hmm. have anything to do with mental health as well when I was in my undergrad. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to work with mental health and I fell in love with it. I was like, wow, we can do so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can be there for clients, families, communities. And at the same time, I was teaching at a small uh, community college and I also fell in love with teaching. So at the same time, and I was like, wow, I could pursue a career in teaching in education and maybe uh, do this for the rest of my life. Uh, And uh, then I went for my master's in public health and then I started doing research and doing my master's. I had lots of opportunities. And then I decided to go for my PhD and on and on. So it all started with having, I think it started with having an open mind Mm -hmm. and life changes. Life can take you places you never thought of. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think think that's that's the key, having having an open mind. Yeah, exactly. It really can open the doors for you. Yeah, and And in nursing, it's such a beautiful uh, career. There's so many things you can do. I feel like sometimes people see nurses working in hospitals all the time and people feel that that's nursing. Mm-hmm. Nursing is dealing with patients in acute care settings, and it's so much more than that. Mm. There's so many other areas that we can explore, and they're beautiful as well. So, yeah, it's a beautiful profession. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're kind of I'm going to go into a little bit more about your research. Um, can you talk to us a bit about your research and the influence of social media on the alcohol consumption of mothers? Yeah, sure. Uh, So that project, uh, that interest actually came to me during the pandemic. As a mother of young children, I saw myself struggling with uh, all the stressors, with the school closures, with Mm -hmm. everything that was going on. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was working a lot with a researcher from Ontario on alcohol public policies. And we were working with lots of different countries and whatnot. And he published an editorial with Dr. Uh, Linda Bosma 
on the influence on so, of social media on alcohol consumption of mothers. And I was like, wow, that's so real. I see mm -hmm. myself in this. I see my friends. I see uh, people I know. I see the community struggling with alcohol consumption mm -hmm. during the pandemic, especially during, uh, especially during the pandemic. Right. The editorial was published right before the pandemic. So it was like in between. It was already happening, but my eyes were not open to that right. <laughs> at that point. And then after reading that editorial, I started noticing on my own social media, like how many memes, how... Yeah videos of making fun of like moms drinking and teaching their kids in the pandemic and mm -hmm. whatnot and that was fun and was like it was fun for me myself included <laughs> I thought okay this is funny but then I started thinking how how uh, uh, harmful can that be mm -hmm. for women mm -hmm. that are struggling that were struggling during the pandemic with kids with school with work with house with everything mm -hmm. that was going on so I decided I, I, I had that question in my mind and when I came to my kids when I found the right team to pursue that uh, that research project with me. So to start with, we conducted a lit review on what had been published about uh, the influence of social media on alcohol consumption of mothers. Uh, we found very few uh, papers on the topic. Mm -hmm. Very little has been studied. So we published the paper and we are now conducting studies like going, uh, going deeper. Uh, uh, we are analyzing Facebook and Instagram posts uh, related to uh, alcohol consumption in mom groups like there's several uh, uh, mom groups on uh, social media mm -hmm. and it's it's incredible to see how much uh, people talk about alcohol in a fun way and how detrimental yeah. that can be mm -hmm. oh, interesting I see well, after reading that paper I kind of even on my social media I noticed like the idea of wine moms and mm. wine moms with little kids and I never really thought I also thought oh that's kind of funny yeah. Moms drinking wine with their kids. But yeah, that is true. Like, what are the impacts of that? Um, what were some of the findings from yeah. your current research with that? Going back a little bit to what you just said, Brooklyn, like moms with little kids drinking wine, uh, research has shown that moms are the main influencers of kids. Mm -hmm. So if kids see moms, and especially moms, drinking wine or drinking alcohol or whatnot, kids will feel comfortable and will seek that coping strategy as well mm -hmm. in the future. So uh, it's, a very in, uh, it's a very important public for us to, to talk about because we are also protecting kids in the future right mm -hmm. as we protect moms so some of the teams we found uh, uh in the few papers that we could mm -hmm. locate uh were related to modern motherhood uh the struggles that women face uh, nowadays, like some of the struggles are their, their own identities. Mm. Nowadays, when you become a mother, you change. You're not that independent working women. You are also a mom. So you add to your uh, identity. And that switch, uh, it's hard because expectations continue the same. You are still expected to deliver as a worker, as a, a highly successful person in your work life. But you are also expected to be an mm. excellent mom, mm -hmm. to have everything under control, to have your kids in all programs, to have your kids eating <laughs> healthy food, vegetables yeah. all the time, even though your kids may not want to. So the expectations don't change. And that's real uh, a, a phenomena that it's uh, current for us uh, nowadays. And that's a struggle because women have difficulty coping. Uh, and some women, they will resort to alcohol to as a coping strategy. Uh, not only women, men also uh, resort to alcohol as a coping strategy. But in, in that study, we found that. Another theme that we found was the normalization of alcohol consumption. Alcohol has been part of society since always. 
yeah. right? Since <laughs> like two, 2000, 3000, we see uh, the history of alcohol since always, but it's normalized. Uh, it's normalized that women uh, consume alcohol in front of their kids. It's normalized through social media. It's nice. It's cool. Uh, in many, uh, all of the papers that we found expressed that alcohol was a connection uh, factor. So if we if you drink, you're part of that group. You belong. Mm -hmm. And many women, when they become moms, they lose their friends. Mm. So their old friends, they don't maybe they don't have kids, or maybe they have older kids, or maybe they move. So you lose that connection that you had with other people. And alcohol seems to be uh, a glue that okay, I'm acceptable. I'm accepted now because I have to drink. Otherwise, I'm not mm. going to be part of this group. So um, it's also part of that, and it's normalized. It's like everywhere you go, everywhere we are, uh, alcohol is accepted, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pressure for moms in general. Like I think about myself, and I have a hard time keeping up with my schedule mm -hmm. and all the things I need to get done, and my banking or my schedules. And can you imagine that plus two kids? Yeah. And then you have to know all your things plus the two kids. And they obviously have much more demands than you do. I think about that often. and think about my own mom and how much stress that could be. And if you don't have proper coping mechanisms, yeah, for sure you could go to alcohol. And then also something I recently learned was how um, alcohol addiction isn't hereditary. It is something, it's a learned behavior. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So that kind of didn't connect that at first. The like mothers, watching mothers drinking could essentially cause the kid to grow up thinking that that's a normal behavior. Yeah. Yeah. You see, uh, you see your parents dealing with that. Like I had a stressful day. Oh my God, I need a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. And if you do that every day and your kid uh, listen to that every day, they will also do that when they grow up. And we have no control of how much alcohol they will drink. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they may drink one, of, one, one glass of wine, but they may drink five or six or seven or a bottle or who knows how much. So it's, it is a learned behavior. It is part of the addiction. It, it is, it, it's a learned behavior. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that we found out, especially during COVID, uh, it was the lack of support. Lots of, mm -hmm. of real-life, in-person support that moms were going through. Uh, lack of support is a reality for moms everywhere, even before COVID, after COVID. It is a thing. But during COVID, it was especially important because all of those places women could go or moms could go were closed, mm. like playgroups, playgrounds, um, other places that they could go to socialize were shut down. So there was, there was nothing to do. There was nothing. You were stuck at home with your kids and your work. Uh, so how do you deal with that? How you uh, manage that? So that lack of support was especially important during COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Even I think too, like the lack of social connection too, like we don't see as much as we used to, people going to church or being part of social groups, it's kind of more like going out and going to restaurants. What are ways that moms can healthy cope with their stress or anxiety? Yes, there's lots of things that are already being done. So like, there's there's uh, community uh, initiatives like play groups, like uh, um, activities that moms can do with their kids. So if you can take your kids out, go to a place, go to a play group, go to a, an educational uh, uh, environment where you can take your kids, and you will also socialize. The woman, the the, the mom will also socialize with other moms. That's extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of early years uh, educational programs going on. So that's 
very, very helpful. I believe that those programs should be widespread, mm. that we should have more of those. Mm -hmm. They should be easily, easy to access. They should be held at hours where kids are uh, energetic, where kid, moms can go. So I, I saw some programs, for example, being held at 5 p.m. Oh. 5 p.m. is not a good time for, <laughs> if you have young kids, it's not a good time. <laughs> you have to get them ready for bed. Yeah. Uh, but like being mindful of the needs of, of the, the families, mm -hmm. right? Uh, to, pro to provide those, those support groups. And nurses can also help a lot because we can uh, provide the, those educational, the, those socializing uh, opportunities in the community as part of our health uh, health promotion initiative that we, we're so good at. <laughs> Nurses mm. are extremely good at promoting health, so why not include moms mm -hmm. and kids and families uh, in the health promotion initiatives? We will be, and we'll be tackling lots of issues, not only alcohol uh, consumption, but also... Uh, eating habits, physical activity, and other things that mm -hmm. are also related to health promotion. So that can be can be incorporated into what we do. Hmm, that's awesome. Yeah. I've spoken to a few moms and we're kind of, we have this talk about how you leave the hospital and it's kind of just like figure it out. Like, is there, do you think that there should be like a program or something that parents can go to after or how are ways that nurses can support um, a mother like before a child is born or once the child is born. Yeah, you're very right. It's it's the feeling that everybody has. Like you have prenatal classes, you have like all the prenatal uh, follow-ups with your physician, family physician, midwife, or whoever uh, who else might be taking care of you. And once the kid is born, it's like, Go and live. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> Take the kid, raise a human being. Uh, I I really appreciate some uh, some initiatives that uh, happen here in Alberta because I had my one of my kids in in Ontario and we had nothing of this. Mm. So here in Alberta, uh, moms they receive uh, the visit of a nurse if they need the mm. nurse will go to their house. Uh, to meet them uh, within four, uh, 24 to 48 hours of the, the child's birth. They will go and visit the, 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 the family to see how they're doing, how they're coping. Um, I would suggest, if I could, <laughs> have more of those visits, mm -hmm. not only on those first 24 to 48 hours, but uh, have the nurse go more more times mm -hmm, after mm -hmm. a week, after two weeks to see how things are going because yeah. postpartum depression is there. Yeah, is right. that those first two weeks are critical for mental health issues, for um, adaptation, to transition to into that new role. Mm -hmm. uh, and lots of problems can happen during that time. So ha having a having more support from nurses would be amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And is that um that program that you're talking about, is that something that the mother has to kind of seek out for or is that? No, it is. Uh, it's part of the, the, the prenatal care in Alberta. Mm. So they mm. will receive a visit unless they don't want to. Unless they don't want to. Yeah, mm. they, oh, okay. they can, but but it's kind of, they, they will it's have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a good thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we should have more, yeah. more visits. <laughs> um, I think we're going to go to one of your other research. Um, I would like to talk about the impact of an online mindfulness-based practice program on the mental health of Brazilian nurses during the COVID-19 pandemic. Would you be able to talk a little bit about this research? Yeah, sure. So it's all mental health. <laughs> it's my passion. <laughs> it's what I, I like doing. And this project, actually, uh, I've been working on uh, since I was doing my PhD. So working with mental health, working with mental health of healthcare professionals as well. Uh, because we nurses are known to be the, the, the profession with the higher prevalences and incidence of burnout and stress. Like research has shown that forever, since yeah, ever. Makes sense. We know that nurses are struggling. The pandemic did not 
not make things mm -hmm. easier. Uh, it makes things worse because of all everything that was going on. So uh, as part one of the one of the possible interventions that we can offer to healthcare professionals in po the population is mindfulness. There's also a strong body of research that supports uh, that shows that mindfulness is effective in uh, helping nurses deal with uh, the stressors. Right? It doesn't mitigate the stressor mm -hmm. itself, but it helps. It teaches nurses or people how to deal with it, how to delay that response. You have the stimulus, you have the stressor, the thing is to delay your response, to think before, be present in the moment, and then uh, process that response and decide how you're going to respond. So you might still respond in a negative way, but you're doing that consciously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about what you're doing. And yes, I will scream at that person. <laughs> I know I'm screaming <laughs> and why I'm screaming. Uh, so mindfulness can do wonders for healthcare professionals. So in this specific project you're, you're, you're mentioning, we, we collected data from nurses working in the... Um, um, in acute care settings during the pandemic. So this was an online program that was offered. So what we did, we selected like, I, I can't remember exactly the number of people, but let's say 40 nurses. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a, a waiting list for people waiting to join the program. So we collect data from 40 nurses doing the online program and from 40 nurses in the waiting list. Mm. So uh, data about depression, anxiety, perceived distress, uh, burnout, and uh, levels of mindfulness that they had before doing the, 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 the intervention, the, the online program. Mm. So after the online program, we collected the same data again to compare compare how the waiting list is doing because they didn't have any intervention intervention mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. they, they were waiting to uh, uh, their turn to 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 join the program and to compare with the results of depression anxiety and all of those indicators after the intervention and uh, the results are amazing the differences were gigantic so uh, nurses that that uh, were offered intervention. They had lower levels of depression, lower levels of anxiety, burnout, higher levels of mindfulness. So they learned how to deal with, a little bit better how to deal with the stressors Good. and also less stress. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think once you can acknowledge the problem and realize what is causing you stress, yeah. you can kind of put it into perspective and then it will give you a little bit less stress. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you learn how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Of course, we still have to deal with the stressors themselves, mm -hmm. mitigate the stressors like the workload, uh, the, 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 the nurse-to-patient ratio, how many patients nurses are taking care for, uh, other uh, work-related stressors that cause the burnout. But at this point, we're teaching nurses how to deal with them while we advocate for better working conditions uh, for nurses. And we have replicated this study with nursing students, with uh, physicians. These studies are being conducted in Mexico, in mm. Spain and Portugal as well. Oh, nice. And right now they are uh, also implementing the, the program with uh, university staff back in Brazil. So all of these uh, other um, um, offerings of the program are not related to research, but based on the research that we have. We know that this work, this program works, uh, and we can uh, offer it to a larger population at this point. So it's there's a lot lots going on <laughs> with this. And um, yeah, my, my, my hope, my, my plan for the next few years is to bring the program to make UN as well mm. and uh, start like offering it to students, staff, uh, faculty, and whoever might be interested. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's even a good program for 
not only healthcare providers, but also just like students or any other faculty. Yeah, anyone, um, any other program. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, because we know that staff also uh, get stressed out, uh, and we don't talk <laughs> about that. But staff at university staff, they really go through a lot of stress. Uh, students go through lots of stress during exam time, so having a program like that might help them. So uh, that's that's all we care for, like the the, the well being of our students and staff and faculty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know that's something I need to work on is yeah. the mindfulness <laughs> and taking a breath before yeah. I before I react. You know, thinking about it and because like being in the moment when you're so wrapped up in your emotions, it can be hard to make those decisions. But it's not easy. Yeah. It's not easy. Sometimes you just think like, okay, I'm gonna concentrate on every step I take. Yeah, it it's not easy to do that. We are our minds are always mm-hmm. going. I don't know, my maybe the past, maybe the future, whatever you might be working or worried about. It's where our mind is. So it requires training. Requires like conscious effort of being present in the moment. It becomes more and more natural as you practice more, but it's it takes effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> um, I noticed in one of your findings, I guess, um, spoke about during COVID-19, your research showed that in nurses, the prevalence of depression and anxiety was 35% and 37%. And of stress and sleep disorders was 43% and 43%. Um, do you think that these results would differ from today or even before covid uh, so I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, I believe it would be either uh, maybe a little bit lower uh, mm. before or after COVID, but not too different because those issues are known to nurses, to nursing for a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's nothing new. The COVID just made them worse, uh, but it's not that different, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I would say too, like thinking about nursing hours and any any other profession that requires um, like night shift work mm. how are some ways that people can cope with the change of like sleep schedules and night shift work having a, uh, a schedule during the day so um, uh, if you know your shift in advance so plan your day plan okay I'm gonna sleep from this time to this time uh, and then I'm gonna do something else I'm gonna go run some errands because we might think that oh, okay so you have can sleep all day long it's not that easy we have mm-hmm. people have other things to mm-hmm. do like you have to run errands you have to do your banking you have to take care of your kids and whatnot so sometimes nurses cannot can't sleep just sleep all day uh, but have a routine so have a routine and sleep like for four hours in the morning, maybe go to bed early if you can, if you don't have another shift coming mm-hmm. up the next night. Uh, but have a routine is very, very important for sleep, for sleeping in any time, especially for night shift night shifters, not only nurses, but anywhere, anyone that works night shifts, having a routine helps a lot. Other than kind of mindfulness, how can nurses practice self-care and resilience with this program? One of the things that I like about it is uh, it's about two hours long. So it, there's two hours that you dedicate to yourself. So during those eight weeks that the program runs through, that where, it's where you learn how to do mindfulness. So we teach lots of different ways in uh, like walking, like lying down, like uh, when you're standing or uh, different techniques. But what we saw from the participants is that they appreciated having two hours for themselves. Mm-hmm. Having those two hours just to focus on themselves, mm-hmm. just to do something that was um, good for them. And they appreciated that. We had lots of uh, 
lots of uh, crying mm-hmm. <laughs> in the program when people realized how stressed they were or how much how stressed they, they, they were and how how much the the, the mindfulness work was helping mm-hmm. how much they could achieve like other levels of consciousness like sometimes people say I, I, I thought I was sleeping but I wasn't really sleeping because I was listening to what you guys were saying but it was weird <laughs> and then you said <laughs> wake up so uh, uh, come back yeah and then everybody was able to come back, but they thought they were sleeping. So oh. <laughs> we talked about these different <laughs> levels of consciousness cool. that we don't even know of. And people were really relaxed after that, after those two hours of taking care of themselves. So it was uh, the eight weeks were meaningful for people because they had that time and they could like really block their schedule and say, this is my time. This mm-hmm. is my me time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they don't really get a lot of that. No, <laughs> unfortunately not. No. Um, so for this program, this would be kind of this program, like they would go through the mindfulness and that would be outside of their shift. Yes. Like for those the, nurses. On their own time. Yeah. Of, on their yeah. own time. Some nurses, they got really a time release from work, hmm. uh, to do that. But most of the participants for that, uh, study, they were doing that on their own time. On their own time. Yeah. Uh, in the, the, uh, the new offerings that we're making, like in, the, in these other countries and whatnot, it's within their, their work time. So the employees are um, letting them attend the sessions and uh, understanding that that's part of the well-being and whatnot. So it's part of their work. Mm -hmm. And then to kind of like if they get overwhelmed or whatever during their shift, they can just kind of go through the program and what they practiced. Yeah. Yeah, And we practice like informal mindfulness is when we you are not doing something that we taught you to do. It's just you're like in the moment right now, like right now I'm looking at this cable and I'm focusing on the cable. So I'm not doing like the walking one Mm -hmm. or doing anything specific, the formal uh, program, but you're just focused on on the moment. And that's what what we expect from nurses, that they can have like 30 seconds before they respond to an angry client, to an upset family, have like 10 seconds, be in the moment, be conscious how you're going to respond. If you decide to scream, okay, whatever. (laughs) You decided to scream, that's a conscious decision. If you decide to talk, it's a conscious decision Mm -hmm. on on how to talk. So taking that step back, being present, feeling, uh, reading your body, your feelings, your emotions, breathing, uh, and then responding. So that's that's, uh, something very important. You don't have to, you don't need to perform mindfulness uh, exercises or activities formal, formally to, in order to, to do that. You can just take 10 seconds, think before you respond, and then you respond. Yeah, I, I was thinking about while you're talking, like kind of some of the stressors for nurses. And I, I forgot about kind of that personal level of your patient and probably like the loss that they endure as nurses um kind of that probably takes a big toll on someone's mental health um are there programs for kind of like loss coping or like loss of patient yeah we discuss that a lot in nursing school and depending on where you're going to work like if you decide to work in palliative care or long-term care where loss occurs or where people are uh, really at the end of life, in the end of life, uh, they do have special training for nurses to, to how to grieve, right? Because we are humans. We make connections with families. We become attached. It's impossible not to. Some patients are more uh, open or we have a better connection and whatnot. So it's hard when they, when they die, like mm-hmm. to, we suffer. 
Mm-hmm. Like nurses grieve the loss of their patients. And yes, there are some uh, spe- specialized programs that nurses can take or employees can offer to nurses how to to, to gr- uh, deal with grief. Another thing that many institutions, they do, it's like a, um, a debrief, like a, as soon as the the, the, the patient dies as soon as the family is there, they will have a person or a moment to cry it out mm-hmm. or to really uh, go through that feeling mm-hmm. uh, at the, in the moment uh, when it's happening. So you don't wait mm-hmm. a week yeah. to debrief that person. You debrief a, uh, as soon as it happens. So the nurse feels connected and feels like supported going through that. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that builds, the emotions oh, yeah. build. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to talk about your research in clinical consciousness development of undergraduate nursing students about the drug phenomenon. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this research? Yeah, so uh, that research is a new project we're just starting. Um, It's a partnership with the Federal University of Santa Catarina in Brazil. Uh, So we are, it was part of my postdoc that I completed in 2021, um, 2022, sorry. It uh, it's uh, we're studying how nursing students, uh, the development of critical consciousness in nursing students after completing a course on the drug phenomenon. So the course has an open pedagogy approach. So we have a, a little bit of a framework, a structure uh, on what students have to complete and what they have to do in order to, to complete the course. It's a two-credit course that's been offered in that university, not here yet. Mm. Uh, but the students, they can choose which drug they want to, which phenomena, which addictive behavior, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, they want to they wanna discuss. So some students will talk about gaming, about gambling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a student that talked about her mom's uh, Coca-Cola addiction. So mm-hmm. her mom, she would drink like two liters of Coke every every day. So <laughs> she wouldn't drink water. So she uh, we discussed that. Students can choose whatever they want. And they are asked to find someone in the community, could be a friend, a family member. Uh, if there some students are working in mental health facilities, they can choose a client. They can ask, they are expected to ask this person if they can develop a plan. So the plan is about, it's a, like what you call a life project. What's important to you? Why is this uh, drug or habit um, causing harm? What's mm-hmm. the harm? Uh, what do you, why, why, why it's bothering you? Why do you want to? Do you want to stop? Because nobody gets addicted to something because it's bad. Mm. The addiction itself it starts because it's a good thing. It might be a good a coping mechanism. It's not a bad feeling to use a drug. We have to recognize that. We have to be mindful of that. Uh, but why is it causing trouble for you? Why are you here seeking treatment? So based on what the person brings and why is it bothering them. We will, the students will work with them, making plans for the future. So we had a student that she was uh, interviewing a client that wanted to quit smoking. I mean, he didn't want to quit smoking. Mm-hmm. He was a smoker. Uh, and what bothers him is was the smell in, on his hands because he always was smoking cigarettes. And he was, he was like, my, my hands are always smelly. I don't like that. So how can, you do, can we deal with that? So she de- she developed some strategies with him uh, for to, to to help him with his hands because that's mm-hmm. what he wanted to work mm-hmm. with. He wasn't ready to quit smoking, but he wanted to deal with that. We had other students. She had a cousin who was a crack addict. Addict. He was living on the streets. She didn't she didn't hear from him in like two or three years. She didn't know what he where he was, and because of the of the course, she went looking for him mm. on the streets. Wow. <laughs> it was kind of dangerous. We're like, okay, don't yeah. go there. 
<laughs> be careful. So she took uh, another family member and okay. she found him. Wow. Uh, was very meaningful for her. Mm -hmm. Lots of crying as well. I think I always do things that make people cry. <laughs> Uh, good ways. I mean, yeah, it's good ways. Yeah. It was beautiful to see what how much he could. He didn't stop using crack. He was still living mm -hmm. on the streets, but he had someone from his family reaching out to him, mm -hmm. say, "Hey, I I'm here for you. I'm I'm your family. I'm here for you, and I want to help you." Mm -hmm. So she was bringing him food and water and things like that to help him go, go while he was going through that. And at the end, students was, are expected to write a reflection mm -hmm. how that changed him, how, the, how they they felt going to that, uh, working with that individual. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece of, that we were uh, analyzing, how how they developed that critical consciousness, cr critical consciousness being understood as the, as the ability to change um, um, society, to change uh, people. So how how we're, we're doing that as nurses? Because as nurses, we... We are in a privileged position of being with people. We stay. We are with clients in hospitals and whatever you want, 24-7. So we are the ones that have more connection, more time with clients. And we have that opportunity to, real, to really deal with social justice issues and whatnot and really think how society is affecting that people's lives, those people's lives. So we, we analyze that, the reflections, how they develop that crit critical consciousness. It was beautiful. It was a, mm -hmm. uh, we are still analyzing the results, so we, we should be publishing soon, but it was a beautiful project. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. I look forward to reading that. Um, is that kind of a new approach? Because we're going into it kind of being like, well, what what are your issues with this addiction? What do you not like about this addiction when instead of kind of being like, this is a problem, these are all the reasons why it's a problem, you need to change. And typically the person, because that's giving them some kind of relief or some kind of pleasure, um, they don't really want to change. So coming at that approach being like, well, what do you not like about it kind of changes their um, opinion on what, what their addiction is. It's not new. It's not new mm. at all. Uh, harm reduction services have been around for a long time. The injection sites that we have in Edmonton and other, in other provinces also are an example of that, uh, the, the novelty of this project is bringing that into the classroom. Mm. It's uh, showing that, showing to students that, hey, you can make the difference in this person's life. And also, I, I think uh, the main gain for students in that class is to open their mind, to look that the person that has an addiction is much more than that. It's addiction is just a teeny, teeny pint of mm -hmm. part mm -hmm. of their life. Might take a long, <laughs> a lot of their time, a lot of their energy, but it's just a little part of, their, of right. who they are. Yeah. And uh, allowing students to talk to people, to go on and say, hey, uh, let's talk about your cigarette consumption, your alcohol consumption, your Coca-Cola consumption, whatever, <laughs> that might be... Uh, uh, might be a problem for you. Let's talk about this. And having that courage, that um, that openness to talk to people and to see who they really are, I think that was the the novelty of this of this course of the the approach we were using, uh, showing them, yeah, people are there. There's people there. Let's help them. Let's um, be there for them and support them in whatever they need. In that way, we can create connection. And that way we can create trust. And those individuals will trust us. And maybe, maybe at some point they might want to quit uh, whatever habit they may have. And they will know, okay, so that nurse, I can trust her because she wasn't forcing anything mm -hmm. onto me. Yeah. She was respecting me. So I can go and talk to her. Now I'm ready to maybe try mm -hmm. and quit uh, drugs, whatever. Mm -hmm. 
even to like the healthcare system, they'll trust a little bit more. Yeah. 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 Was there anything else you were wanting to talk about? Uh, I would like to talk about student engagement if sure. we have yeah, time. Of course. Of course. Um, because I feel like students, they want to do research. Many mm -hmm. students, they are really interested in doing research here at McKeown. I can see that in my classroom. Mm -hmm. Whenever I talk to my year one students about research, they're like, ah, oh, what can I do? Can I help? Can I, can I just be there? Yeah. <laughs> Look what you're doing and whatnot. Um, so uh, I always try to engage as many students as I can in my projects, bring them, them in. Sometimes I don't have funding to pay them as research assistant, but you're like, okay, maybe you can be a co-author in that uh, publication, yeah. or uh, you can you can pub you can submit uh, um, an abstract on a conference that's going to look nice on your resume if you want to go for mm -hmm. graduate studies and whatnot. Yeah. And I feel there's so many ways in which we can um, offer opportunities for students. And one of the things that I like, I like to have students participating in my research projects, but I also like to support them in their own mm -hmm. endeavors, in their own uh, questions. So I have, I, I, I usually teach a research course and some students, they come up with their own research, research questions. And that's so nice. It's so amazing to read those papers and to read what they're doing and to see that uh, magic in their eyes. So I always offer, if you want to continue this project, let me know. We can um, I, either continue with myself or other faculty. I can align, I can find someone that aligns mm -hmm. with your topic and whatnot, because it's there. The questions are there. I can see students, they have res excellent research questions in their mind. And those questions can help change the nursing and healthcare system. So I always encourage my students to question, to never stop questioning, to question us, to question uh, uh, and to approach us, approach faculty to conduct their research studies because it's beautiful to see the results that we can approach, get, that we can get from students. Students at McEwen are brilliant. I love it. <laughs> I just Aww. love it. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So is that like, is that your advice then? I, to, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. If you have, like, if you, ha if you have an interest in research, don't be afraid to approach a faculty. We are always interested in, most faculty are always interested in having students working with us. So don't be afraid. Go and vent your, <laughs> write down your, your questions and come to us and we, we will be more than happy to help. Very, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for being here today. It was lovely talking to you. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and great advice going forward to any students listening or any of our listeners. Pitch your pitch your research ideas. Yes, yes. please do yeah. that. <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs> well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to support this podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave us a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast, brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Funding for the podcast is partially provided by the Government of Canada through the Research Support Fund. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Brooklyn Logistician and Natalie Smatis. Music, sound design, and editing is by Natalie Smatis. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Brooklyn Logistician. And our executive producer is Hugh McKenzie.